The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I'm really excited for the guest this week. It is W. Kamau Bell. He is the host of the Emmy Award-nominated CNN docu-series United Shades of America, which happens to be premised on the same exact idea as this show, which is that we should be having uncomfortable conversations. He also has a new book out called, and I'm going to take a breath here, the Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, Tales of a 6'4", African-American, heterosexual, cisgender, left-leaning, asthmatic, black and proud, blurred, mama's boy, dad, and stand-up comedian. He is all of those things. Um, he's also very funny and uh, very sensitive. And we're going to talk about his show and what he's learned from doing his show. But the first part of the episode is going to be a conversation with a listener who wrote in to ask for some guidance with a conversation that she has yet to have. And you know, like we say the show is about awkward conversations and about difference, but sometimes it's not having the awkward conversation itself uh, that we do on the air. It's we talk about what you have to do to work up to that awkward conversation. And that's what we're going to do with Christina. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And so we're going to take a call from a listener who has written in with a question having to do with dealing with her family, um, her family of origin, I would say, rather than family-in-law, and and her struggle to kind of connect with them over the fact that she's married to a gentleman from West Africa. Mm -hmm. So I decided to have you on. (laughs) Because I'm the West African expert. (laughs) Well, you know, like you bring some personal biography expertise to this. Um, not necessarily from West Africa specifically, um, but uh, your show, obviously, United Shades of America on CNN Sunday nights, um, is about awkward conversations and getting over differences. And then also you are in a biracial marriage, correct? Yes. yes. And I know you've had your, you know, I don't want to use the word struggle, but you've had con- you've had differences within your family to talk about. I don't think they've reached the level that this woman's has. No, yeah. No, we certainly have had. We've certainly had things. You had things. Yeah, everyone has yeah. things. Everyone has things. So, Christina, hi. Yes, hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Oh, good. good. Thank you. Well, thank you for making time to come on the show. Now, I found your letter, which we will post, um, to be incredibly eloquent and almost obviated the need to have you on, but I thought it'd be better to actually be able to talk to you you know, in real time about it. Yeah. Do you want to read your letter? Yeah, I would love to read it. Okay. Let's do this. All right. 17 years ago, I asked my parents if I could bring home the guy I was dating for Thanksgiving dinner. They said no. 
My God-fearing, church-going parents had never said no to me before. I had brought home several friends during college who were from other countries, including a boyfriend at the time who was a fair-skinned Christian missionary kid from Canada. The difference this time was that I wanted to bring home the guy I was in love with, which was from Togo, a small West African country, and spoke broken English and was as dark as the middle of the night in the country. They hadn't even met him. They refused to meet him based on the fact that he was from Togo and I was in love with him. We moved ahead with our relationship, got married, and have enjoyed a pleasant relationship with them. Last Thanksgiving, we asked my parents exactly why they refused to meet him those 17 years ago. My parents, my husband, needed to finally hear from my parents that indeed they were faced with racism and wanted to hear a sincere apology for how they treated him. They did apologize and admitted they had judged him solely on where he was from before even giving him a chance. And I had to hear from their mouths that they had my back if any unfortunate thing happened because of today's social climate. My husband is the only person here from his family. He went back to school and received two degrees and is very successful in his line of work. He has more education and makes more money than anyone else in my family. He is more of a man, husband, and father than I could have ever imagined. He won the visa lottery to come here, and I feel like I won the lottery by marrying him. After all these years, I thought my parents had changed. I thought they'd learned their lesson about judging people who are different than them. But based on my recent conversation with them, they have not. They are diehard Trump supporters, love Ben Carson, and see no problem with Jeff Sessions. So now I feel like I'm faced with having to really accept the fact that my parents are still and may forever be racist. That's hard for me to swallow, considering all these years together with them and my husband and kids. So how can I do that? How can I accept that my devout Christian, country-living, small-minded, white family really doesn't have my back and does not see that being black in America is different than being white, and that the policies and orders this administration is putting in place suppresses minorities, immigrants, and people of color. The end. Wow. Christine, I have to say, your letter just breaks my heart. It really does. And I think, I mean, to my reading... I'm curious what Kamau thinks as well, but you're asking about a lot more than just how to accept it. That's like that big question, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot going on here. And um, mm-hmm. I almost think the acceptance part is like, I have an answer for you there. It's not an easy answer, but it's a simple one, <laughs> which is that, you know, I mean, you, you, you work on acceptance. Acceptance is a thing we have to work on all the time. I've talked to, you know, I talk about in my, you know, my spiritual life and my recovery, what I work on is acceptance, but there's more, I think, I think there's more here, but um, I'm curious to come out. Do you want to ask anything or before we try? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think what you're going through is more common than people realize as far as uh, couples of interracial couples or mixed race couples. I think that, you know, there's, the details are very different, but as I sit here, my wife is white and, you know, I'm not from Togo. I'm from Palo Alto. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, a lot of the details are different, but a lot of the, and, you know, certainly, you know, nothing happened quite as uh, clear as that, but certainly, you know, I felt like, oh, that all sounds, 
you know, there's parts of that that sound very familiar, uh, even if it's just not knowing why people are behaving how they are and if they're, you know, and sort of wanting to forgive people for things and later going, uh, I probably shouldn't have forgiven for that. You know, I think that all that stuff is very similar to a lot of people who are in, not only interracial couples, but interfaith couples and, mm-hmm. you know, gay couples. I just think that stuff is, there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, my big question is how old are your kids? How old are my kids? Um, I have a son that's 12 and a daughter 11. Okay, so they're they're like kid age. They're not grown-ups yet. Uh, you know, for me, this becomes about the kids. Like, you know, that's the, that's the thing I think of. Once the kids are a part of it, it becomes about what's best for these kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, as an adult, we often have to put ourselves through things where you go, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I have to do this, or I feel like I should do this, so I'll do it. But with kids, I feel like there's a lot more like, what do I want to put my kids through? Mm-hmm. What should they have to deal with? Mm. And well, and, you know, we've been very open with our kids. Um, they know exactly, you know, how their Mimi and Papa treated Daddy. <laughs> um, they've also seen us, you know, together at family gatherings. Um, but now that they're really coming of age, they're trying to process everything. And, you know, my husband and I have... CNN news on all the time, or we, you know, we're talking about what's going on in the climate and, and they hear it and they're trying to process too. And now, I mean, for me, the heart of the matter is, I mean, I'm scared to go with my husband and kids to the country, rural Georgia, where they live, where the, my brothers live, my parents live because of this, you know, free pass that crazy people got Mm -hmm. from Trump. I mean, I don't, and my husband, he's not going to say, oh, you can't send the kids to Mimi and Papa's this summer for a week, you know, like they usually go. But he told them, I can't protect you there. You know, I mean, I'll be here. You'll be there. I can't protect you. So be prepared for whatever happens. Not that something's going to happen, but you just don't know now. You don't know. Right. Like, I feel like the question here, like what I was sort of trying to allude to with with like there's a simple but hard, you know, sort of. Uh, answer that's about acceptance. But it also seems mm-hmm. like you're dealing with this much more concrete issue, right? Which is like, literally, what the fuck do you do? Like, mm-hmm. literally, how do you negotiate this relationship with your with your parents? And I mean, I, I guess that what I'm hearing from Kamau is a way of framing it that I hadn't really thought about, which is like, what do you want to expose your kids to, right? I think there's one sort of what I would guess is maybe a, what I think a lot of my white folk would might say, which is like, oh, you well, you have to think about the kids, which means you don't want to deprive them of their grandparents, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure no, that's no, the answer, no, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not necessarily that's not actually what we're talking about. We it's like think about the children. What kind of you know biases and prejudices um, do you want to expose them to? And that's a tough question. I actually I have a friend um, who had to make a decision about this and who did decide in a, a little bit more extreme situation than the one you're describing, did decide to to basically cut off his grandparents from their grandchildren um, because their grandparents had gone to a much more extreme position than the one you're describing, you know, much more mm-hmm. Alex Jonesy, like race war <laughs> kind of place. Um, and I think that's a fairly, that's easy almost, right? Like that's like, well, okay, there we say, it's easy to say we don't want to expose the kids to that, but you're in a position where you're where they have a relationship with them, right? And it seems like it's an right. okay relationship. 
um, that they also sound and, and come out like I'm the one without kids, so I'm operating a little bit in the dark. But they sound like they might be old enough to have a pretty frank conversation about it, you know, like to let them sort of be a part of the decision. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, they said they want to ask Mimi and Papa why they treated Daddy that way. Like they want to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I'm I'm on, I'm always on the side of like that's a that might be a good conversation. Yeah, first of all, um, yeah, unleash your kids on your parents. I would certainly do that. Like, if they want to have that discussion, the great, the great thing about that is that your, if your kids can do that to their grandparents, then your kids can do that for anybody the rest of their lives. Right. I feel like that's the, that's why I'm focusing on the kids here because their experience is the one that when they're adults, would you rather them be the kind of people who sort of stand, who stand up when people are saying things or doing the wrong thing, or the kind of people who go, well. Some people are jerks and some people aren't. Let's just keep it moving. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, right, right. I yeah. think that's the thing I look at with my kids. My kids are younger than yours, much younger. But my six-year-old is certainly at a place where she understands good versus evil. She understands that Trump is not good. She knows that we wanted the lady to be president. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so for me, it's like it's important for her to know that, like, this is wrong. I want you to know this is wrong. And I want you to know why this is wrong. But by the time you get to 11 and 12... You can. I mean, I don't know anything about a lot of the details. I want to be clear about that. You can send your kids to go stay with your with their grandparents for a week, and you don't know what they're seeing or who they're talking to or who's sort of going. Let me explain to you how this whole black people are monkeys thing work. You know what I mean? I don't. You know, I just think that like at that age, you, there's so much there's so much more that can be happening outside of your sight that you want to sort of arm them for that uh, figuratively. Mm-hmm. Or you want to go, you know what, I don't think you need to be around that at all. And I, w- I would like to explain to you why that's wrong, but I don't think you need to be there and see it in your face. So that's, to me, like I said, it's all about your kid's experience, like what your uh, husband said about, like, I can't be there to protect you. Yeah. Like, for me, it's like, mm-hmm. as, a, as a dad, I'm like, well, that's my job. Like, you know, like, that's why, like, so, so uh, you know, so I feel like I, I would be loath to send them off at 11 and 12 and just sort of hope it you know i mean i understand i'm not you know questioning things but i feel like i would want to be like we can talk about why that's wrong here in our house yeah and also we can talk about why we don't want to be there you know yeah i think there's something i think i again as a person without kids but also vaguely remembering me being 10 and 12 myself and this is when i started to ask these questions and started to sort of have these fights with in the south with people i went to school with (laughs) um you know i was i got to be pretty you know I guess the term would be woke, but uh, about it, because my parents led such had such were such great examples to me about racism and prejudice who told me not to tolerate it. Right. And communicated very clearly to me that I was not to tolerate it and, and that they they lived through their actions. They, they taught me that through their actions. And I think that talking to your kids about maybe why we don't think it's necessarily a good idea for you to stay with your grandparents this summer. Let them have like I mean, I don't know how much input like I guess that's a parenting philosophy about whether or not they get to make the decision. But I think that bringing them into it is definitely the right way to go. Because like Kamau said, I think that being able to stand up against racism and prejudice themselves is is the goal here, right? Like being able to mm-hmm. see it and call it out um, on their own when they're not, when when they, and have that example, being able to not, to say it not to just their grandparents, but to people in their, other people in their lives and in public, you know, um, is maybe the direction you want to be heading and again sort of to arm them for it but they don't but they're since they're so young yeah i i also kind of think it wouldn't necessarily be fair to send them by themselves to their grandparents into this what might be a hostile atmosphere right um Mm -hmm. i mean that's the part that i can't get over 
right? Like that's the part that breaks my heart. <laughs> like to have a have to have your husband say you're not safe at your grandparents. Like that's just right. You know, that's a terrible. The other, the other thing I would say too, and this is about this goes for your kids, especially your kids, because I. Like I said, my wife's white. Her, her, that uh, because of how her family works, all her family members are white. <laughs> They're all <laughs> biologically connected. Uh, not all families work that way. I understand, but that's yes, how her right? family works. So and so, uh, and when I'm there and my two daughters are there, it's like that's we're the three black people. <laughs> so, and so, I know that like. You know, sometimes based on anything, when we leave, we have to sort of, you know, there'll be times where I'll talk to my daughter, we can decompress. Also times my wife talks to her parents about like, hey, this, not this, you know, less of this, more of this. Now, ultimately, her parents are great grandparents. They just have some blind spots that, that they, that we sort of work through with them, uh, maybe more aggressively than they're interested in sometimes. But I think the big thing that I learned early on is that your presence there is a presence mm-hmm. to these people, and especially with your kids. Grandparents love to be grandparents. And you have to decide, do I gift them with my presence? And that means yours, your kids, your husband's. Is, is, do they, have they earned this? You know, have they, have they earned the, the right for me to come here and to see my adorable kids and to see how cool my kids are? Have they earned this? Because to me, that's a, that's a big question, too. Have my, has my, have my parents lost the privilege of my presence? And, and maybe, and sometimes I think the only way people understand that they need to change is by being, is sort of by being denied things they think they have every right to, like, like, the, like their grandkids or you coming on Thanksgiving or mm-hmm. whatever holiday celebrations that they think just come because that's the way things are, because that's how family works. And you get to decide at this point, no, it's not how this family works until you guys sort of wake up at least a little bit and recognize that you're wrong and recognize that you have to change. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds like a really good framing to me. And I I also have found in my life, I mean, at least like with my husband, who, again, not as extreme an example, but like when he says stuff that's objectionable to me, like the way that I've had I've learned to frame it is that I am not going to be in the room while you talk like that. You know, like you don't get to enjoy my presence and talk like that. Like I'm in here because he'll go, he'll go to like you, you, you and my wife go to the same program because <laughs> he'll be like, you can't tell me what to say. And I'll be like, you're right. I'm not going to tell you what to say. I'm going to tell you, you don't get to talk to me if you use that language. You know, and we've, we've successfully kind of reformed a lot of his language. Like he's from Jersey. He's a dude. He's a bro. You can just imagine kind of what like language he might've used in the past about women, let's say. Um, and that's been a pretty successful campaign on my part, you know? In a, in a, on a much smaller level, just to let him know, like, I'm not trying to change you. I am one. I am hoping to create a situation where you want to change yourself so that you get to enjoy the the benefits of that growth. Right. Um, and yes, it's a probably useful tactic for spouses everywhere on all kinds of things. <laughs> but I found it helpful, you know, in, in a parallel situation. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So here's the thing about the ads this week. They are all really intimate. If you listen along, you will see what I mean. Uh, first up, I'm supposed to talk to you about parachute sheets, which I have endorsed before. We have them. We love them. I am sort of at a loss about how to talk about them without talking about, you know, how I sleep with my partner. Um, but I'm going to try. They're super comfortable. And it is one of the things that I love about getting into bed these days is these linen sheets from Parachute. Um, and it's also the place where I will say um, 
as I've discussed before, my husband and I still argue about some stuff like all couples do, although we, yeah, we even still argue about politics. But, you know, bed is the safety zone. Bed is the no arguing zone. Bed is the politics free zone. And it's also the place where like every once in a while, John will be like, man, I'm really glad you have that podcast. And he's talking about the sheets. Unfortunately, he's not not talking about like the healing I'm doing in the world, which of course is happening. I hope, but he's talking about the sheets, which are, like I said, they're from Parachute. They're linen. They get softer every time you use them. And I can feel good about having them as a sponsor because they actually do good in the world. They are made from the best fabrics and materials for sure, but they also partner with the United Nations to donate malaria prevention bed nets uh, to areas that need them. They also, when you return your sheets, should you return them, though I would not want to return mine, and I hope you don't return yours. But if you did return them, they donate the returns to Habitat for Humanity. And they're just like, they're, you know, have this sort of artisan feel to them, literally. Uh, and they're cool colors. They're, I guess, based on sort of California, Southern California colors. Ours are deep gray. Um, and you also can order them, and I cannot remember what the set is called, but you can order just a fitted sheet and a duvet cover, which actually also has led to more harmony in my marriage because that means the bed is really easy to make and we don't argue about it anymore. And also that means that John doesn't ask me to quote unquote help him make the bed, which always has bothered me throughout our marriage because you don't need you know help to make a bed. What you're asking for is I don't you're, what you're saying is I don't want to do this alone, um, which I guess is a metaphor for marriage. Any case, if you want to try out Parachute's uh, great sheets, you can visit parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. Again, that's parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns. They offer a 60-night trial. If you do not love it, just send it back. No questions asked. And again, you can feel you know extra good about sending it back because they do donate the returns. Parachute sheets, I cannot argue with them. I want to sort of circle back here. It's after you make these decisions, then you get to work on the acceptance part, which is Mm -hmm. ultimately harder. I think some of these decisions are going to be made, you know, in conjunction with your husband and your kids and you'll have each other to support. Um, And then it's going to be accepting whatever your parents' response is that is going to be the real work for you personally, I think. Well, and, and, you know, that was one one thing that kind of shocked me in the response from my parents when I wrote them the letter was, um, you know, I felt like I was sort of expressing my heart and what I'm feeling right now and feeling sort of fearful and, and um, uncertain about, you know, the environment and society right now with my family, with my husband and kids. And my parents took it as, I'm asking them to change. Mm-hmm. And I was taken back by that. I was like, well, I'm just trying to express to you and why I feel this way, giving some examples of what's happening in the politics. And this is why I'm feeling this way. And they took it like, well, we're not going to change. We believe what we believe. And, you know, we don't go to the streets and, uh, we wait till we can vote and we voice our opinion at the ballot box. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and just to rewind a little bit, because we didn't get this into the um, introducing you, but you did include like the, the before the letter you wrote, there was some context, which is that you had sent your parents along 
email or letter, I guess? Yes, a letter, letter. that I stuck in uh, the Mother's Day card. Right. <laughs> it was yeah. about, it was exactly what you said, sort of expressing your concern, it included some examples from uh, rather horrifying, you know, current events. Um, yes. And your mother did not respond, which is, I think, you know, a yellow flag at least um, mm-hmm. to not respond. And then when you had a conversation with her, that was the response was like, you don't try to change us. And whoa. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with that kind of response. Uh, and I think that that's one, that's sort of like where the acceptance piece is again, like you can't control like the way that they read what you've asked them to think about. You know, I think Kamau's go back to like the situation of like letting them know that their reaction does have an influence on what your relationship is going to be. Mm-hmm. Kamau? Yeah. The other thing I would say is that I think that a lot of times, and I've learned this through in my life over and over again, we sort of want, and I've done this too. So we sort of want to write the letter that makes the thing happen differently. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And we write our letter or whatever. And I've done this too. And you give it to the person or you make the phone call or you schedule the, you know, the, the coffee shop date where, okay, well, I'm finally going to, me and this person are finally going to get to the bottom of this. And oftentimes only one of you is prepared to do that at that, at that time. And so I think the thing that I would realize is that that letter is probably just the first step in a series of steps. If you want to invite them to become better versions of themselves, you know what I'm saying? Like, it may take another Mother's Day letter and a, and, a, and, a, and a Thanksgiving conversation and something that happens at a family reunion and something that happens at a wake and something that happens just on a random Tuesday where you sort of keep pushing and keep inviting one or both of your parents to sort of be different people. It may take a couple, you know, Huffington Post articles, <laughs> a couple <laughs> Facebook arguments on it. You know, I mean, there's just it, it's like a, it's the thing that happens lots of different ways and takes time, and ha- and you have to keep changing tactics if you're interested in like really inviting them to be different people. And one of those tactics is like, well, until you really sit down and talk to me about this, we won't be back. You know, and I mean, you know, and that's not easy. I'm just saying that like, I think a lot of times we want it to happen in one fail swoop. And what we learned through the last election is that a lot of people in this country are harboring some deep-seated feelings that many of us on what is formerly known as the left weren't ready for. Mm-hmm. And and I would offer that a couple of different things. One is that um, a lovely piece of advice I've learned along the way is that you change a relationship when you change. It doesn't take two people to change a relationship. Uh, so the actions that you take and the priorities that you set will change whatever that relationship is in the direction that you're thinking, even if they don't change yet, right? So what you're doing is progress. And then the other thing that I would offer is that you, I think, already have this in your head, which is great, which is that the priority here is the values and education and lives of your children, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not, and that the relationship to their grandparents is a subset of that. Right. Like the relationship Mm -hmm. with the grandparents is not the primary objective. The primary objective is their well-being and their, you know, spiritual and philosophical growth. And they, you know, they should be exposed to things that are push that in a positive direction. (laughs) And if their grandparents aren't a part of that, you know, like. That's that's sad, but you are inviting them to be a part of it. Right. Like that this is a process that they can all be a part of. And in some ways, mm-hmm. like there could be a great gift here 
you know, for everyone. And that is something to, to, to keep in mind and hopefully something that they can keep in mind. I really appreciate um, your words of wisdom and Kamau. I mean, you know, a lot I feel of what I have, I'm going through and what I have to um, come to grips with is the reality of who my parents are and they're not what I thought they were. <laughs> and at, you know, 42 years old, now I have to accept my parents as human beings with flaws and um, some shortcomings that are very difficult for me to face based on the lifestyle I've chosen. So um, I know I'll get to acceptance eventually, <laughs> um, but uh, I am giving myself some time and I'm very grateful that I have the support of my husband and kids and, um, you know, uh, you know, I'll just take one day at a time. And even though in my mind, I was thinking it'd be so much easier just to cut them off, either say, okay, I'm just going to suck it up and um, cut them off or pretend like everything is fine, you know, one way or the other. But it sounds like your advice and what my husband's been telling me is now you sort of have to take it one day at a time and not take it as this is family. This is obligation. I got to do this. This is, you know, these are my parents. It's, do I feel like it? Do I feel like, as you said, that they're worthy of my presence? Um, And for me, that's a lot more difficult because I have to think about it and it's more emotional because I have to sit down and think, okay, do I really want to do this today? Do I really want to call them? Do I really want to, you know, um, but I really appreciate this phone call. And I would just say, I would just say that, yes, it's like your husband, like you said, it's a day by day thing. And today you may feel like doing it tomorrow. You don't, but you shouldn't feel bad about not wanting to deal with extra things you don't want to you know, deal with. Like, these are, they are your parents. At some point, they're also just people you know. <laughs> I feel like that the big thing is the energy that you're sort of worried about, that you're sort of wrestling with your parents. That's what I think about it. It's like that energy goes to the kids. Hey, kids, here's how you should not be in the world. <laughs> I mean, like, I feel like that's how I... That's how I sort of dealt with it in my life. Like when the people in your life who are these, now we're just a bunch of adults trying to figure this out, but the kids are the ones who need our attention. The kids are the ones who need things put into context and explained. Why aren't we going to Thanksgiving this year? Because we're going to Disneyland. Because Disney's more welcome and accepting than grandparents placed, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think it's about giving, it's about, it's about flipping the script and really sort of like, instead of like thinking, oh, we're not going to go to Thanksgiving. It's about what are you going to do with that time that's going to make you feel good about that time? You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's the, the thing. I, when me and my wife decided sometimes to skip Thanksgiving, then it was like, hey, we know a lot of people in our life who don't have access to family. Let's invite them over for Thanksgiving. And it becomes its own separate fun event. You know what I mean? And I'm just, I'm sort of highlighting Thanksgiving as a thing. But I think that can be true of all this stuff. The time that you were giving to, that you feel like you were giving to them that wasn't working for you or wasn't doing what you need to do or was affecting your kids in a negative way. But that, think about what can I do with that? I don't have that time and energy back in a productive way. Yeah. And then also that there is like, this is like a journey that has good stuff in it too, right? Like that there's this part that's about your parents and about negotiating that. And that's going to take some work, but that, you know, self-care is also like an act of, you know, justice and that you get to like do that with your kids you get to be like we don't have to expose ourselves to stuff that's like you know that stuff that brings us down all the time like you do get to do things that empower each other and that reach out to their community and that that is where strength comes from like you get strength from connecting with people who are 
you know, your support and your love and you, and you want the same things together. And that gives you that gives you the energy and the and the resources to go back to your parents at some point. <laughs> you know, mm, like, that's good. That's very good. Like yeah. you, and I know like, you know, doing service work together is probably going to be like would be an awesome thing to do, too. Like letting to put into practice the values that like you hope that they take into the world. And that's what you're also doing when this negotiation with the parents is you're showing your kids. I, this is I'm just repeating what Kamal said, but you're showing your kids how to be in the world, how to deal with people who don't who don't see the same things that you do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the most valuable thing you can possibly give to them. Right. Well, that's good. That's good. Thank you for writing, Christina. Thank you for being open to talking about this. I, I do. Mm-hmm. Like Kamal said, it's more common probably than people realize we have gotten like yours was an incredibly moving letter but there's so many that i that i've gotten that are that are similar so hopefully you know hopefully people have heard something that they can use thank you yeah thank you no thank you and we're going to take a quick break and be right back with kamau bell you're listening to with friends like these with anna marie cox and now we're going to talk about bras so i don't want to make any assumptions here but uh, this this is not an ad for everyone. <laughs> the nice thing about Third Love is they're super, super comfortable bras. And I'm going to tell you a little secret, which is that as someone who works primarily from home, bras are not always a part of my wardrobe. <laughs> not on a daily basis. Although recently I actually, so I have a checklist at the end of the night um, that is a little bit of a feel-good list um, so that I can give myself credit for what I've done throughout the day um, a little bit just to keep me honest. And on the list, I, I kid you not, is get dressed. And how do I find get dressed? What is get dressed in a world where you can wear, you know, yoga pants all day long and, and to the store? Get dressed means did I put a bra on? That is how I define dressed. I mean, obviously, there's more to it. But that is that is the difference between like pajamas and leaving the house. Did I wear a bra? And I have this, you know, sample of a bunch of third love bras and I've been wearing them and, you know, I, 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 it still counts as getting dressed, but they are really comfortable. Um, you answer a few questions online about the shape of your girls and about what kind of bras fit you, what your major problems are. And magically, without someone in a bra shop, you know, feeling you up, they send you bras and they have fit me. Which, you know, I always thought I was hard to fit. I think everyone thinks they're hard to fit. But uh, the ones that I've gotten have fit me great. And they have the kind of difficult-to-find sizes that those of us who are invested in such things know all too well are difficult to find. You know, things like with a really small band and a really large cup. I'm not saying that that's my issue, but it, it, it might be my issue. They also have half-cup sizes. Again, just answer a few simple questions online, and they will recommend a bra in the right size and style for you. So they know that you'll love what they're going to send. So they're offering friends like these listeners a chance to try one of their perfect 24-7 bras free for 30 days. Just pay $2.99 shipping and you're on your way to a perfect fit. You'll get to really live in this bra. You can wash it. You can wear it all day. You might forget you're wearing it. I'm going to be totally honest. You're not going to forget you're wearing it. But if Third Love isn't your new favorite bra, you can just return it or exchange it for free. So go to thirdlove.com slash friends now to get your perfect third love bra and try it for 30 days. That's thirdlove.com slash friends to try your new favorite bra for free. Thirdlove.com slash friends. Thank you so much for, for helping to talk to Christina. I I, I think 
um, you obviously brought a lot of expertise to the table with that, not just from your personal experience, but also doing the show on CNN. And I have a question about your show, uh, yes. which is, so when Trump won, did you think about your show or did you think about the country? Because it's okay if you thought about both. Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> people think that uh, it's funny when people ever talk to me about things that sound careerist, like, oh, Trump winning is going to make my show so much better. Yeah. <laughs> really? It wasn't, I didn't, that, I, at the time when, you know, the night that Trump won, I was looking at my wife in tears mm. and my, uh, my five-year-old, now six-year-old going like, why is mama sad? And my two-year-old sort of like just walking around confused, like what's happening here? Like not everybody's very emotional right now. So, yeah. you know, the, the, I didn't think about the show first, but what I did go is go, Oh, the show now has an even stronger mission statement. I'm very clear on what the show is supposed to do now. Yeah. That, that, I mean, I, like I said, it's okay if you think about both, right. Cause I sort of had the same reaction. Like I was in tears. Um, the whole, we would, you know, everyone who worked at MTV news, it was ugly, ugly cry all around. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was like, well, I guess now I know what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, I've told this joke before. It's not really a joke. It's true, which is that, you know, in my head, there was the whole Hillary wins. I take some time off. I write a book. I get certified as a yoga instructor. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I had the same plan. I needed to do some travel. You know? And, you know, that was radically shifted. And I suspected it might be the same for you. I mean, I've always felt like one of the reasons your show is good is it comes from a genuine place, right? Like you have a genuine kind of like thing that you're trying to do that the show is a vehicle for, which is understand yeah. people, talk to people who are different. Yeah, it, it actually worked out. It, I mean, this is sort of like, again, it's hard to talk about this. It worked out really well. <laughs> it's okay. Let's just, <laughs> let's just posit that it's okay that it worked out well for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I just don't, I just want to be, right. you know, I have to laugh when I say that because I don't want people to think that I was like, oh, sweet, Trump won. We're going to Dearborn, Michigan to talk to Muslims next <laughs> This is going to be great, you know, which, but it's what happened. Like, he won in our next episode. We were filming in Dearborn, Michigan, talking to Arabs and Muslims. And right. so, it, like, it gave some, some, uh, you know, some fire to that episode or some weight to that episode that it would have had already, but it gave it a much bigger context. So, we had all the same conversations, except we were also able to have conversations about, like, also, who did you vote for? Now, most right. people, of course, didn't vote for Trump, but we talked to a Muslim imam who was like, yeah, I voted for the Republican. He was afraid to say his name because he knew it was not a good look. But, yeah, so, it, like, it gave it a little more weight and a little more context. And for me, more context makes more context makes everything better. And I guess it's a, two, two things flowing out of that. One is um, having been out in the world and talking to people who are conservative, people who uh, have different opinions and races and whatnot. Do you feel that you had a better sense of what of, of whether or not Trump was going to win than other people? You said you were crying. So I, you know, there's some sense of tragedy, but like there is so much talk in the media, this all this love self-flagellation about how we should have seen this coming. We should have been outside of our bubbles, you know, talking to the real, real folk. Um, and you were. You were doing that. So did you have any, do you feel like you had any better of a sense that this was going to happen than other people did? I mean, I certainly travel around the country more, so I see that America has more different types of people than most Americans think. <laughs> so I think that, like, I, I certainly, and I talk about this in my act a lot now, because I'm on the road doing shows too, and I, I talk about the idea that, like, 
people in in Berkeley are like, what, ugh, Alabama. And people in Alabama are going, ugh, Berkeley. But even that creates the idea that there's only two different types of America. When you travel around, you go, no, there's a lot more America out there than we most of us realize. And everybody thinks their version of America is the best version. So people in New York City will be like, this is the this is the greatest city in the world. And also they'll tell you horrible things that happened to them in the greatest city in the world that day. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's like everybody sort of loves their part, warts and all, for the most, overwhelmingly. And so I realized, like, yeah, there's more, there's not this, people are looking at Trump from lots of different angles or looking at Hillary from lots of different angles. So there, so there's not the same sort of like, well, it's clear that it can't be him that people thought it was. And me and my friend Adam Mansbach, who's a writer, wrote an article in 2000, I think it was 2015 or I can't remember when it was, but it was about, about sort of alerting people to the problem of Trump. And this was way before people thought he was even close to winning, which means it could have been written an hour before the election was called. But <laughs> so I definitely was like, this is a this this Trump thing is a problem. Even if he's not the president, it's a problem because it is sort of creating and it's it's sort of inviting ugliness that in a more profound way than we've done before in this country than we had done in years. And I guess that was would be my follow up question about if, as you real America reporter, um, you know, correspondent might be able to answer. In my life, I have seen a difference in how people express their biases and prejudices since Trump was elected. I have seen people, I've seen a real difference in people getting license to say stuff that they they were more embarrassed to say before. And I'm wondering if you've seen the same thing. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, the things that, I mean, there's there's a reason why the Klansmen wore hoods at a certain point. (laughs) Because they were like, it's not a good look to be saying this stuff out loud in the light where everybody can see your face. Well, when Donald Trump, forget the election, but travels around the country talking about how the president wasn't born in this country and how he's a secret Kenyan and, and you know, and he, you know, maybe, you know, sort of like invites that level of like crazy conspiracy theory, then people who are like all along the conspiracy theory spectrum are like, oh, I can talk out loud now. Mm-hmm. If, if this, if this, if one of America's most popular people, because Trump was a celebrity, which means automatically one of America's most popular people, uh, is is able to say it out loud, then I can say my things out loud too. And I got way crazier things to say than secret Muslim. You know, like so and I think it it's certainly the fact that like no that that uh, you know, America, it's the media's fault, it's the entertainment industry's fault, it's it's the people who are standing within three feet of Trump who don't tell them to shut up's fault. That we didn't all make our thing to go like shut up. <laughs> go away. That we sort of let it go. And because nobody thought, because people weren't, again, paying attention to the greater country and going, oh, there's people out here taking this seriously. And did you, so have you seen a difference, though, in uptick and how, or a difference in in how people respond to you and how people respond to the show? Because like I said, like, I have people in my life who used to be embarrassed by the racist shit they said, and now kind of look at me like, so what are you going to say? What are you going to do about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely think like, you know, I've, I've played all over the country and I've been, you know, and doing shows. And so. There's like I did a show in Auburn, Alabama at the Auburn University or University of Auburn. I can't ever remember. <laughs> I think it's Auburn Alabama. University, but yeah. <laughs> Auburn University. Uh, uh, so, you know, I've done and, and after the show, this like blonde haired, blue eyed, six foot two. Basically, he looked like he'd be the young Captain America when they make that movie, which they inevitably will. Mm-hmm. And he came up to me to talk to me about like about Black Lives Matter, but like, how come they don't ever, how come, you know, the, mm. sort of the questions that like Black Lives Matter answered a half hour after they started, but you know, he's, he's refused to pay attention to, but now he feels like he can come, and I had addressed in the show he had just seen, 
but he had still like this is like was refusing to take it in because what he wanted me to say was like you're right black lives matter doesn't do anything you know what i mean <laughs> like that's the thing that i think that i've seen is like just the the level of proud pig-headedness mm-hmm. that is in the world and that the level to which people are like fine to go i don't believe in your in facts <laughs> like, that trump you know, just today he's talking about pulling out of the Paris Accord. Like, as my, you know, mm-hmm. he's like anti the future. That people are sort of proudly anti-intellectual in a way that I felt like I hadn't seen in my lifetime. And it probably started when people, big criticism of Obama was that he was too professorial. What? Yeah. The guy who's the president <laughs> is too smart? That was kind of it. Yeah. They were like, they made him feel stupid. They made, he made them feel stupid. So that yeah. meant, and, and their way to make him feel bad was to say, "You studied too hard." What are you talking about? <laughs> why, why you talk so good? And meanwhile, I mean, a lot of the black people I know who grew up were were you know, had had heard that accusation our whole lives about you talk white or you talk too good, and it's like, but we heard we were like, that's actually a good thing. Meanwhile, Trump's. You know, all the different studies have been shown that he ta- that he talks like a third grader. Well, <laughs> well the, what the studies have shown is that he might have be mentally impaired. <laughs> but let's not get into that. I let's like no, I'm, no, officially, officially not taking a position on that. Officially not taking a position yeah. on that. But yes, yeah. he, I just I just know that like the way in which he's delivering the information is is such that people feel like I can understand this, so this is better. Whereas. I kind of like it sometimes when somebody's talking over my head because I go, oh, I got to learn more. <laughs> like, I gotta, like, I gotta really. Study he wasn't stuff. even really talking over our heads. He was talking to us like we're adults. Like, that's actually. No, yeah, like, to, yeah. No, no. I was, Obama was never talking over our head, but I say in life. Oh, well, like yeah. Right. With people who are, who are way smarter than me about lots of different things because I feel like it makes me a little bit smarter because I get to hang out with them. Yeah. And I feel like. But now, yes, there's a, you know, there's an, I mean, I remember years ago, because I, I don't pay that much attention to professional wrestling anymore, but there's a character <laughs> who was a heel, he was, you know, one of yeah. the bad guys, and his and his big heel thing was that he used big words, like that was his, like, oh, and wow. I was like, oh my God, this isn't good. And on some level, you know, he was a bad guy because his words were too big. And on some level, that on some predicts Trump, because a lot of people who love professional wrestling who love the bad guys, love Trump. That's <laughs> amazing. What was that guy called? Like Wordy McWordington or like what? what I, think was, <laughs> I think it was probably some sort of count lord, some sort of English thing. <laughs> Wordy Von McWordson. Like, Brainy know, like, McSmarterson. It's like, every, it's like every, every James Bond villain is the smart guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> Like we somehow we've turned smart into a bad thing. But Trump is also a James Bond villain too, like with the fucking like orb and like his like yeah. weird like sense of what scale is. Like I do sometimes think that he thinks a million dollars is a lot still, you know? Like yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So I personally do not find tidying up to be magical. Uh, I am against the whole magical joy tidying up. Does this bring you joy approach to stuff? Because I like stuff. (laughs) And I also just feel oppressed um, by this minimalist approach to life, the whole capsule wardrobe bull crap and whatnot. Uh, But I do have a personal rule that I do clean out my closet every season, and I do try, I really try to throw at least one thing out for every new thing I bring in. But what can be a real hurdle to doing that is that it's a pain to put all that stuff in a, in a 
you know, bag or a box and take it to Goodwill, it, no matter like what a good cause it might be, Salvation Army, like, you know, uh, name your donation spot. It seems like it's going to be a good idea, but it's a big, big pain. That is why I love ThreadUp. Um, I use ThreadUp to sell my clothes. You get a credit or cash if you sell. And then you also, uh, you can use that credit to buy clothes. And the thing about buying clothes from ThreadUp, um, you know, it's gently used wardrobe items from brands that you will recognize like J. Crew and Anthropology and Gap and Lululemon and uh, Banana Republic and Michael Kors and Theory and Seven for All Mankind. All that stuff, um, they're all on there. It's all recognizable brands. And you can feel good about adding to your wardrobe if you're buying from them because, you know, you're not like adding to consumerism really. You're just kind of like taking a pre-loved, pre-worn thing and it feels just less bad. Um, And sometimes it can feel actually downright good because you can find stuff that maybe you didn't catch the first time around. I got a pair of sandals um, from ThreadUp that I had missed last summer and are out of production, but I kept an eye out for them. Uh, And they're back this year and I got them for like 50% of what I would have paid before. So I use ThreadUp, you know, coming and going. Um, I donate and uh, which, by the way, is what they do do with clothes that they don't sell. They donate them. Uh, So I I sell my clothes to ThreadUp and I buy clothes from ThreadUp. And it is, you know, also kind of cool because like thrifting, you can discover stuff that uh, you hadn't intended to get. And also that you may have, again, like I said, thought you had missed Um, And also you can fall in love with something that someone else uh, didn't see uh, how awesome it was. So they add over 15,000 items to their site every day, which is really overwhelming. And I almost didn't want to know that. Um, But you can give your wardrobe the style update it deserves. Every item is triple inspected by hand, ensuring only the highest quality of styles. And when you place your order, all your like new treasures will arrive neatly folded and packaged in ThreadUp's signature polka dot box. And they offer a money-back guarantee. It's free shipping on qualified orders and easy returns. Head over to ThreadUp.com today and save up to 90% off retail on your favorite brands. Plus, right now, go to ThreadUp.com slash friends and get an extra 40% off your order. That's ThreadUp.com spelled T-H-R-E-D-U-P dot com slash friends for an extra 40% off. So, ThreadUp. Now, Consumerism is oppressive and it will never fill the hole in your soul, but we must buy things and some things give us joy and ThreadUp is a great way to do that. ThreadUp.com slash friends. Before you go, I wanted to let you know, because it's fine if you haven't been paying like super close attention to everything I say in public, but I use your um, construction about how white people need to have more racial pride all the time. Like and, oh, good. and I <laughs> and then I, I mean I tried I always point out it came from you because it is a weird you can set off some alarm bells that you don't mean to set off if you're a white person talking about racial pride but I mean since also I don't expect every single listener to know everything I've said in public before do you want to like talk a little bit about that because like it's actually something you sort of referred to just a second ago because it's like we kind of need we white people should do a better job of policing our folk when they do dumb shit. Yeah. 
And I, and you know, I have white people who agree with everything I say except that one thing. Like they think, well, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> like I'm, I'm very used to like having to explain that. But to me, it's like you know who else took? I th- not maybe didn't take it from me, but he's using that thing is Richard Spencer. Uh, and but that's Richard but see Spencer, again, that's the wrong way. <laughs> that's like not that's the thing. That's why we need white people like you and other good whites oh. out there to do it the proper way, the good way, because there's a lots of people who are doing it the bad way. And the way that you you have to sort of like. You have to meet this thing. You have to stand up in the same way that, like, it's funny that Ben Carson, like the one we talked to, said that her parents like Ben Carson. Mm-hmm. You realize Ben Carson's not in public that much because he knows black people don't want to see him in public. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you think if, if black people love Ben Carson that you would never see him? If black people love Ben Carson, he would be out all the time right. and doing live events. He'd be on tour with Kevin Hart. Right. But because he knows that, like, black people are not that into him, he is gone. It is not. And so, I feel like white people, the good white people, and there's organizations like Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge, and, you know, certainly other people talk about this. White people need to really get there's, – there's always talk about learning how to deal with your white privilege and learning about white supremacy. But when you cut to the nut, I feel like what it is is like white people, if you're a good white person, then figure out what the good version of white pride is so you can meet this evil version of white pride where it is. Because definitely – you know, and people, white people, are like it's so hard. I don't know how to do that. I think it's harder than being brought to this country as property. <laughs> you think it's harder than than being a like to be the native people of this country who had the run of the entire land, and then suddenly go, no, you live over there, and you don't even get to own that land. Yeah, and be systematically disenfranchised for hundreds of years, and then have like be systematically cut out of accumulating wealth, and be forever yeah, like on yeah, the short end of yeah. the stick. Yeah, no, that shit is hard. Like telling another white person maybe you shouldn't say that is literally the least you can do, right? Like, yeah, and I feel like, it's, <laughs> and, and, and the fact that, and the fact that, uh, you know, and it, to me, it's like it's a, it's a. In the same way that, like, Trump was able to get into office because it was this sort of, like, he sort of, the bottom was bubbling, blah, 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 and it sort of worked its way up to Trump, and suddenly Trump is now, like, the, 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 the head pimple in charge. Like, if white people organized the good white people, the way that sort of, like, the, like the women's march happened, like, it was just like, we need to get ourselves together, and it was all aligned around uh, woman. Great. But what if white? What if good white people said we're going to have a good white people march? Okay, well maybe well, that's not such a. I mean, everywhere. I'm, well, okay, like I don't know how that's would play really, but <laughs> I mean, I like the idea. Need, but historically, when white people historically when white people get together in March, I'm just going to tell you it did not turn out well. <laughs> like, well, that, that, we need to, we need to we need to reconceive because uh, we need re- to reconceive. We need big ideas. The president is about. It looks like the president about to pull out of the idea of the world right. going in the future. Like he's about to say no to the future. I'm trying to figure out how to frame this because I am so wary of like when you get a bunch of white people talking about how, you know, whiteness, like it does tend, it, it, historically you get some more looks like more like Richard Spencer than, you know, me. Uh, but I'm trying to think about how to reframe that because I do think there is, there's obviously something to this about the idea that, that we need to re- police ourselves and that we need to be reminding each other. And also that there is pride there, right? Not the Richard Spencer kind of pride, but the like taking responsibility for our actions kind of pride. Like the kind of the, the, the racial pride that would be like we know exactly who we are and we're going to try and be better, Right. Like patriotism versus nationalism, if you want to put it that way, to again reframe it kind of from Richard Spencer. And that white pride exists. It's just not named. And I think that's the problem is that like when whenever, uh, 
you know, like, like when, like whenever, you know, Tina Fey is celebrated and by many of the women who celebrate her, it's because she looks like them. Mm-hmm. And, but they're not saying that. <laughs> it's because she's a woman. Really, it's funny that, but she's a woman who's the same skin tone as you and has the same hair. As, you know, right. I mean, it's like, we, it's just not named the same way that like, you know, a lot of like, we, we just call it culture. And we've, this is all stuff that we've, you know, many people have talked about before. We just call it, we don't call it white culture. Right, and I think that that's the problem. Is that, and I, so I'm here's a big fan of Tina Fey. Wrote a <laughs> big fan of so not, not about me trying to bring down Tina Fey. No, it's just uh, about naming. It's like about naming not, stuff. You need to name what you're need to name. Yeah, about, talking Amy about. Schumer is an even a better current example. Yeah. Probably, it's like a lot of the people who love Amy Schumer look like Amy Schumer, and they feel about her in a more deeper and profound way than the than I'm sure than the like Asian woman who's a fan of Amy Schumer who likes her but it's not the same thing in the same way that I as a black man am a huge fan of Bruce Lee but when I went to a Bruce Lee exhibit in in San Francisco and saw Chinese people who were fans of Bruce Lee I'm like oh wait they're actually bigger fans of Bruce Lee than I am yeah, <laughs> because he looks like that. There is some comedian that perhaps you're going to remember who it is that had this thing about, I think it might be, oh, it's Aziz Ansari, uh, I think, who said something about how, like, when a person of color gets an Oscar, like, how, like, people are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he's like, do white people feel like this all the time? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, my God, another white director, one best director, woo! You know? And um, the thing oh is... <laughs> The thing is, like, we actually do. We just don't name it, right? No, we don't name it. And, don't name it. and we should. Yeah. And I just wanted to share real quick, like, I, this, this came up today because I guess there's some controversy in the UK about a woman saying that, the, that Britain had the was the most racist country in Europe or maybe the world. And this awful Twitter troll toad person who I won't name did this little rant, who's a journalist in the UK, did this little rant about how, like, you shouldn't talk about, if you're directly affected by something, then you're not a good judge of it. And he that's why racism, like, if you're directly affected by, he, what his argument was, was literally, if you're a black person, then you're not the best person to talk about racism. Whereas me, as a white person, who is not directly affected by racism, that's the part that made me go, um, is a better person to talk about it. He actually, imagine being a white person who thinks you're not affected by racism. Imagine that. He also yeah, used affected well, that, wrong. Well, but. The other thing is like, yeah, because that's how everything works. That's why you always get other people to parent your children. They're a better judge of what your child needs than you are because you're too close to your child. <laughs> but, ima- but imagine thinking like racism doesn't affect me because I'm white. Like, I just can't. Like, yeah, I'm just like yeah. you. I mean, that person's lost. Right. (laughs) But that's and that's that's a classic example of like hashtag white people come get your boy. Like that's a classic example of like people of color are probably going after that dude on Twitter and white people are going, I I don't even like they're not they're not taking the same level of like personal like you are embarrassing. Oh, I found I for what it's worth. Like, that's what I did. I mean, I was like, you are embarrassing. Like, that's like and I think that just like I said, more more. Every day on on Black Twitter, some black person is getting called out for embarrassing the race. Every day, sometimes multiple times a day. But meanwhile, Trump is getting called out as embarrassing the country, mm. not white people. And I think that white people have to. That for me, there may be other ways to get this across, but I feel like white people, you need to own your whiteness and realize how 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 much you get away with because you're white, and how much you can how much you can change the world because you're white. Because you know, a white person, it, any random white person is more likely to be able to talk to Trump about climate change than every other person of color on the planet. Any random white person you want to, than Barack Obama calling Trump, go, hey, man, let me talk to you about climate change. You, any other <laughs> random 
white person on the planet has a better shot at getting that conversation than President Barack Obama does. Oh, Kamau, I heard I heard Ivanka's on that. I mean, like, what? <laughs> I, yeah. Ivanka, oh, uh, the great, the great uh, white woman hope. Yep, yep, she was. Although I'm going to say I was, I was, I, I didn't like Ivanka before. Did not liking Ivanka was cool, but um, yeah. I would should probably let you go unfortunately, um, because this is great fun. And I really appreciated uh, you helping us out with Christina's issue, problem, whatever. Um, maybe we'll have to check in with her again. I, uh, I yeah, wish I mean, I, I, it's not easy answers. I mean, that's the hard part about that. You have to sort of deal with, you have to, ultimately she's got to sort of deal with what can she put up with and what can she sort of stomach. And that's a question that she has to ask herself. So I just sort of say, here's here's a bunch of things I've thought and learned. But yeah, you have to deal with what, what can you put up with and what do you want your life to look like? But it's also powerful just to be reminded that's not something that she has to struggle with entirely by herself, that there are people like you and other people who are in, you know, yeah. who are gay or other people of color who or different like religious um, backgrounds who also deal with this, this really similar situation of having to negotiate yeah. family and values being, being different. And I hope that people that are out there know that, too. All right. Thanks so much, Kamal. Thank you. And that is it for the show. With the one guest, I just have one Twitter handle to give you, and that is at W Kamau Bell, which is W-K-A-M-A-U-B-E-L-L. And I guess I have two Twitter handles to give you because the other one is for the show, which is at crooked underscore friends. And that's at crooked underscore friends. And if you have feedback about the show, you can email us at withfriendslikepod at gmail. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And the thing is, you know, I asked for feedback and so I get it. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's actually, you guys are really nice and I really appreciate that. And for the most part, the feedback is constructive. And sometimes it's actually just about making a connection. And so many of you have written about uh, both the prayer episode and the John Moe episode. We will be doing follow-ups on both of those. Other things for those who have stayed tuned for the Easter egg portion of the show, uh, we're thinking about doing a Hillary episode, gotten a lot of feedback about um, some of my offhanded comments about uh, would-be President Clinton, so we might do something about that. And like I said, thinking about doing a follow-up for both the John Moe Depression episode and for uh, the conversation we had about prayer. Honestly, I think that's probably just going to keep coming up, so I may not plan a whole episode around it. People have also asked about the music. The music is by Apex Manor, who is my friend Ross Flournoy. Uh, you can seek out the albums that he has done. And also he is on Twitter. Okay, third Twitter handle, at Apex Manor. And I think that is about it. If you've made it this far, that means you're probably a fan. So please go rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, above all, remember, you are not alone. You are loved. Be well. And I'll see you next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. 
when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.